You are listening to a teaching series from Jubilee Church entitled Tested. This series explores the book of 1 Peter to learn how we can respond when our faith is tested. If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. It's sure good to be back home. Good to see you. In July 14th of 1913, a little boy named Leslie King Jr. was born in Omaha, Nebraska. He's named after his father, Leslie King Sr. His dad was a mean man. He was mean, abusive to his wife, Dorothy. He was, a, he was abusive verbally and physically. And even after Dorothy brought little Leslie home as this infant, he took a butcher knife and said he's going to kill his wife and kill that baby. Dorothy, fearing for her son's life and her own life, she left her husband. And after just 16 days uh, from her son's birth, she got a divorce and the judge gave her full custody of this baby for good reason. She was a single mom, and so she moved to live with her parents, which were in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and attended church there. And in that church, she met a guy that was the exact opposite of her previous husband. He was a kind man, he was a gentle man. He loved her, and he loved little Leslie. And so they got married. And after they were married, he adopted Leslie. Years later, they had three other children after that, and uh, people couldn't tell the difference in the love and affection. He loved his adopted son like he did his own biological son. And when he adopted him, he changed his name. Changed his name and gave him his name. His biological dad, he had his biological dad's name, Leslie King. But he gave him his name. His name was Gerald Rudolph Ford. Gerald Ford said, my stepfather was a magnificent man. My mother was wonderful. So I, I, I couldn't have written a better prescription for a superb family upbringing. Gerald Ford became the 38th president of the United States. And he would say that his path to the White House began with his adoption. He said the principles that he carried during the Watergate crisis were principles that had been instilled in him by his loving, adopted father. He said, I'm largely the man I am today because of my adopted father. Well, we're in a similar situation. For you who become believers of Jesus Christ, you've been adopted into his family. A heavenly father looked at us when we were estranged from him when we were dead in sin, 
caught up really in the culture of this world and all the evil and abusiveness of it all. He looked upon us and he had compassion on us and he loved us. And he said, I want you for my daughter. I want you for my son. We had no capacity to initiate that action. He did it. He did it for us and on our behalf. And we who've become followers of Jesus and in God's wonderful family, adopted in that family, we've been given a new identity and we've been given a new name. And he is pleased to call us his own sons and daughters. And we have the privilege of calling him our wonderful heavenly father. And he inclines his ear to us and hears our cry. We know he hears our prayers. Scripture says, Abba, Father, or Daddy, Father. He invites us into his presence. He has done so much for us. So whenever you begin to read First Peter, it's written to a group of Christians that have been undergoing terrible testing and trial. In fact, for the Christian faith, they've had their possessions and homes confiscated. They've been they're, they're in exile, living in different parts, uh, not home at all, different worlds, different cities. And they were in danger in the midst of testing and trial. It was so difficult for them to lose their way and somehow forget who they were. So Peter writes to them, and he reminds them of who they are. And when we get to the scripture that Pandora started to read for us, the first word there in verse 13 is, therefore. And whenever you look at that word, you know that something has preceded it. It's like, I'm telling you something, therefore, which is a word that says, let's respond to that. Okay, here's something I need. It's like you tell a little kid, you know, they want a cookie. They want some, you, you, what do you say? Here's a cookie. It's the therefore. Thank you. It's a response to what's been given to them. And so he starts with a response there. Response to what? Well, if you read the preceding verses, and they've all been preached on here, but for instance, verses 3 and 4 says, this is what's happened to you. According to his great mercy, God's great mercy, he caused you to be born again to a living hope. Who did it? I didn't do it. He did it. Because of his great mercy, he caused you. He did it to be born again to a living hope. And then in verse 4, he says, and to give you an inheritance kept in heaven for you. Hey, I got something waiting for me, and so do you. It's an inheritance in heaven for you. So he's he's saying, oh, I know you've gone through fiery trials, but look what God's done for you. Don't lose your perspective of that. Our life as followers of Jesus are indeed Blessed indeed, regardless of what you're going through right now. Therefore, he says, therefore, because of all that God's done for you, he says, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded and set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. To be sober-minded is uh, sometimes we think of these words in not a very happy context. We say, well, he's sure sober. Does he ever smile? I think his face would crack if he smile. He's sober. We think of it that way. But the word sober here actually means to be clear-minded, which is the opposite of being drunk. Well, I've never seen too many clear-minded drunk people of you. No. Be, but be, to be clear-minded is what he's saying. Be clear-minded in the midst of all the distractions, 
and all the difficulties and troubles that you may be going through, be clear-minded about this. Be clear-minded about what God's done for you, and be clear-minded about the hope that he has for you. And the grace that saved you is the grace that's going to finish the thing. One day Jesus is going to come back again, and that's our hope. It's the hope for a future inheritance. It's a hope for when Jesus comes back and he changes everything. We believe that to be true. And so it, that hope affects how you live and how you make your decisions, for sure. So how I spend my money, how I make my decisions, really based upon that hope that I have and who I belong to. Out where I live, there was uh, uh, some real estate investors they bought up a whole big track of land, acres and acres of it. And uh, they brought in machinery, and they began to excavate that land. And it's outside the city, but so they, they built their own water system, big old water tower. And they built their own sewage treatment plant. And then they built roads throughout the whole place and staked off lots. Now, that's a lot of investment right there. And then they built model homes for people to look at. That's a lot of investment. Why did they do that? Because they had a vision of a future hope that someday that would be a huge, huge subdivision. And because they had that, it affected what they did with their resources and with their time. Now, it worked out for them. There's houses all over the place there now, for sure. But the fact is, is because we have this hope in Jesus Christ and the fact that he's coming again, the fact that he's laid up for an inheritance should affect the way we make our decisions and live our lives and how we invest our resources. And so Peter is trying to get a hold of some people who are going through some real hard times and he's reminding them of the future. And it affects how we direct our lives and how we make the decisions that we do. Then he goes on in verses 14. Well, let me just read for you. He says, okay, you do that. And then as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions or, or another translation says evil desires of your former ignorance. But as he's called you, he has called you as holy. So, also, so be holy for all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's a tough scripture. I drew this one. In this series, I get this one right here. This is tough. How do you like this? Be holy as God is holy. Anyone says, yeah, I'm there. And be holy in all of your conduct. Anyone else want to give our testimony today of how that's worked out for you? And, but actually, I'm going to help you with this today. Do you believe that? Come on, be positive. Talk to me now. I'm going to help you with this, all right? You know I'm going to help you? All right, good. <laughs> you can trust me. This is no trap. This is going to work out. When we come to Jesus, uh, we, we come with a past that's following us. We're dragged certain things. There's certain habits or way of thinking. They, they kind of come with us. And they need to be changed, and they need to be transformed. And so... He's saying, hey, there's some things to get rid of here. And you have to be proactive. There are things that are not complementary to your life. 
in Jesus. And there's a danger whenever trial and trouble comes to go back to your old default settings before Jesus. You know, some of those ways of thinking and habits. You know what I'm talking about, I'm sure. And we need to be transformed. And God's grace is there to heal us and transform us. But there's some things that you have to proactively say, God help me, I, don't, I know this is not something to bring into this new life with you. And you can help me with that and change that. Not only are there some things to get rid of, but there's some new things that you're to embrace. And this is the heart of what I want to talk to you about, because most of us in this room, if I were to ask you, we were to get into a secret corner and I would say, do you feel holy? And there probably wouldn't be anyone who would say, well, you know what I did last night? You know what I did last week? No, none of us, because we acquaint it with certain things. But he says, embrace this life of holiness. Be holy. He says, be holy. He quotes Leviticus, because I'm holy. Now, let me help you with this word, because it's a scary word for us. The word holiness simply means to separate or to cut it off. Holiness, as is applied to us, what is a holy person? It's to be separated or to be set apart. We are separated unto God. We belong to him now. That's what that means. And it's kind of a religious sounding word because you think of like some guy sitting on top of a Himalaya mountain somewhere separated from the world. He's a holy man or something like that. You think of something like that, but it's not what it means. Let me give you a, a, a rather crude illustration to help us maybe. We're in the midst of a a project in our house that started up simple and then it's, it's like this wasn't going to take long this little thing needed to be fixed up and, and then as we got into it it's like taking a bite of something when you're invited over to dinner and it's awful and the more you chew it the bigger it gets and there's no good place to spit it out and it's too big to swallow you know what I'm talking about we start on this project, and they say, well, this is wrong. We can't do that because this is wrong. This is falling apart. This is, and it's just like went, it went from room to room in our house. Awful. And the, the countertops had buckled up a bit, and so we were having a new uh, countertop put in the kitchen. Now, they don't give those things away. So I'm, I'm spending some money on this, and... And I'm thinking, okay, we got to know how to take care of this. So I found an article about how to take care of this particular product. What you do. What you, don't put this on there. Don't put this on there. You know, that sort of thing. I found this. I not only found it, I separated that copy out, and I made sure Linda had a copy of this, my wife, Linda. Since she may be doing those sort of things more in the kitchen than I may be doing them, I thought she should have this information too. So I got her a copy of this. Now, why did I have to separate out a copy of these instructions on how to take care of these countertops? Because if I don't do that, I can't use it. To be set apart for use is exactly what the Bible means when it talks about being holy. It's recognizing you're not your own, you belong to him. And if you belong to him, you belong to him for his use. And that's a privilege and a wonder to be partnering with him. To be a holy person is not 
what people normally think when they think of the words, what it means to be holy. Because when we think of the words holy, and say, be holy, it's something not accessible to us as human beings. We kind of feel that way about it. It's like we, we use the word to refer to, like, well, he's holier than thou, or here comes Holy Joe, you know, or someone who's uh, critical and self-righteous, or someone who obeys all the rules. Well, they do all the, all the rules. But it's not about keeping rules. It's not about that at all. Holiness is an attitude of the heart by which you recognize, I belong to him, and that's a joyful place to be. And therefore, God, you can use me. I say, oh, God, I'm like a nickel in your pocket, and you can spend me however you want to. I'm yours. I belong to you. Holiness is an attitude of the heart in which we we look at God and we say, here I am. I'm yours. You purchased me. I'm in your family. Use me. And there's a tremendous clash in our culture about this word, use me, because it's kind of a negative word. It's like we're supposed to be independent and be careful that no one really uses us. But this is not really what it's talking about. It's talking about holiness is a person who recognizes they belong to God and are set apart for him for his use. That's marvelous. So it's, it's about giving the entirety of your life to God. It's about giving him all there is of you. It's like saying, I'm yours. I, and, and it's keeping nothing back for yourself. So it says, be holy because I'm holy. It's like, it's like becoming like your heavenly father is what that is. Be holy because I'm holy. It's like, remember who your dad is now. Be like me. We want you to, to demonstrate the family resemblance. And you see that in scripture. In Antioch, they didn't know what to call those people. It's the first place they called them Christians. It's the only thing they could think of. They're just like Jesus. They demonstrate the family resemblance. So there they called them Christians. Peter stands before a Sanhedrin council and he's given his appeal. And they say, they took knowledge of him that he, they had been with Jesus. With Jesus, with the family, with, with, with God, with him. We resemble the family resemblance. It's marvelous. It's not about morality. It's about bearing his resemblance. What is he like? Compassion, loving, merciful, gracious. Now that's it. We model that. We resemble that to others. Now, along with this is there's a certain freedom that God wants to give us under authority. Did you know life without God is slavery without authority? Life with God is freedom under authority. Now, I know that doesn't sound, what do you mean, freedom under authority? Yeah, yeah. Now, I'll, I'll try to unpack this for you. You see, it sounds weird. Because if, if you're under authority, you're not supposed to be free, right? But if you look carefully at this verse, it says, As obedient children, do not conform to the passions or evil desires you had. Now, the word conform means be shaped or molded. So he says, the, the, but the second word, passions, 
That's kind of an unfortunate translation because it actually means inordinate desires. Some translation says evil desires, but it actually means inordinate desires. And I'll explain what I mean by that. You have certain basic needs, everyone here. To eat is one of them, and you're probably thinking about that right now. Stop it. <laughs> that's, that's a legitimate need. To eat and to drink. And every one of these things is legitimate uh, need. Could God created food and drink. He shares with us in that. He likes them. God invented rest. He rested on the seventh day. He wants you to rest as well. God invented sex. That's good. God invented our social needs for approval of other people. God gave us a desire to work and to accomplish things. These are all good things. They're all good. It's all good. But Peter says the godless life is, is not so much a life of evil desires. Well, of course, it can be that. It's not really a very good translation of the word. It gives the impression that we're talking about people who pillage and murder and all that kind of stuff. Don't be like that. And most of us would qualify we're not doing that. This is not what I was talking about. So let me say, he's paraphrasing, but he's saying you used to be molded. You used to be fashioned. You used to be utterly controlled by good desires that had become inordinate desires. And that word means out of order. Did you know a good thing can get out of order? Did you know that a job's a good thing to have, but it can get out of order? Children, being parents, is a good thing, but it can become such an obsession with you, it gets out of order. You see, the danger is not going out and doing something really bad. Most of us here would never think about that. The danger is the good things that become inordinate desires. And then you begin to live for that. Everyone in this room is living for something. All of you are. Now, we all know that the thing we're supposed to live for is we're supposed to live for God. We're supposed to live for Jesus. We're all living for something. And you all make decisions based upon the certain priorities of values that you have. So I, I can read your mail here today. I can tell you something about everybody in this room. This is what it is. Every one of you has a certain value system. Everybody. And that value system determines how you make decisions and how you spend your money. And how you use your time. It becomes how you orient your life. And the only way you can make priority decisions and the only way you can decide whether this or that is if you have a certain hierarchy of values. Things that you highly value becomes the reason for your living. Now, here's something. Some people live for attractiveness. There's a whole industry out there. You know that, don't you? Magazines and products. I understand I'm not criticizing a product. I'm just saying. There's a whole market out there because some people live for that. They live for attractiveness. Or they live for approval of other people. Or they can live for power. They can live for so many uh, different things. And it becomes a central value in that without that, life is no longer joyful for them. Let me ask you, because only you can answer this question. What are you living for? And without it, 
you find yourself miserable, unhappy, not joyful. Because we all live for something. And you can either make Jesus the central value in your life. Or you make other things, temporary things, the central value in your life. If I made uh, attractiveness the value in my life, my handsomeness. One day I look in the mirror and I'm not handsome anymore. My forehead fell down underneath my chin. (laughs) My chest... Yeah, we know what happened to it. That time has done its work. If I I live for that, I'm not going to be joyful. And I'm missing. uh, Our life begins to fall apart. If If you live for something temporary, to the degree that you live for that, what are you living for? Because to the degree that you live for that, instead of Jesus, there's two things that happen to you in your life. You either are filled with anxiety about the future or you're filled with guilt about the past. Now, I'll explain that. Anxiety is just going to be intensified in your life to the degree that Jesus is not the central factor in your life. So if I'm living for money or if I'm living for my kids, what am I going to do when they leave the house? Or if I'm living for attractiveness or approval. Or if I'm living for the Republican Party or the Democrat Party. I could be filled with anxiety. You know what I'm talking about. Because these values are transit and they don't last. And you feel threatened. So when you live for anything other than Jesus being central in your life, you will be filled with anxiety. They're not permanent. They don't last. Your future is filled with worry. Well, I hope this happens. What are we going to do if so-and-so gets elected? I have got a relative that is so upset about this. I don't care how many times I remind him, Jesus will take care of things. Don't worry about God's in control. He's where our confidence should be. Now, I'm not being irresponsible or abdicating responsibilities, but he's a Christian who's really upset about this. And his candidate did not get, not going to get nominated. And he just has, feels like we should almost give up on the world right now. He's so anxious about the future. And to the degree that Jesus is not central in your life, other things are your past is filled with guilt because you've decided the only way that you can respect yourself or feel good about yourself is if you achieve certain things or if you look a certain way or if you own something and it didn't happen in your life and you failed and you feel guilty about it. I wasn't good enough. It just didn't happen. I wasn't good enough. I tried. I tried, but I wasn't good enough. So anything other than Jesus being central in your life, your future is going to be filled with anxiety. Your past can be filled with guilt. Now, that's not a very good way to live. 
and your anxiety, your guilt is, a, is, a, is the truth detector in your life as to who you're really, really living for. This is what Peter's talking about. And what he's saying is, life without God means I'm driven by inordinate desires, not good desires for good things that now fill me with anxiety and guilt because they've become central in my life. However, a holy life is different. It's a life of freedom. How many of you know anxiety and guilt is slavery? It's not freedom. But but a holy life is a life of freedom as obedient children. Do you know what it means to be a holy person? It means you're obedient. And the word obedient means you've submitted your will to another. You've said, I'm a nickel in your pocket, God. You can spend me how you want to. I belong to you. I've got no complaints. I'm yours. Whether something is painful or not, I'm yours. To be holy is to be wholly obedient. Entirely. Now let me ask you this. And aren't you glad I'm not asking for verbal responses? Just in your own mind. If there's an area of your life where you're not being obedient, obedient in all things, well, I'm a Christian and I'm obeying God and best I can, I'm doing the best I can. There's this one area. I'm not quite submitted that to him or not. You know, right now, I just, I'm not quite there yet. I haven't done that. Well, if you've not submitted everything to Jesus, you've not submitted, you've submitted nothing to Jesus. If I explain it this way, if I were to say, I'm going to give you my house, and today I would. (laughs) But I'm keeping this one room here. And you can't come in there. I'm going to, that's my room. Guess who really owns the house? Me. The guy who said, that's the room you can't have. Because if you can't own the whole house, you don't own the house. And if you're to say to God, you have everything in my life, he says, this one thing I'm not too sure about. Then you've not submitted anything. You've retained ownership of your life. That's not a very good place to be. To be Holy it doesn't mean that you're perfectly obedient, but it does mean you've submitted your life to him. And I take my hands off my life, and I give up my rights to every room in my house. And I say, come in, Lord, you can have it all, because this house isn't mine. I don't belong to myself. I belong to you. More than that, holiness does not simply consist of an external submission. It's about family here. I like what he says, what Peter says. And we'll, 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 we're about there. As obedient kids, you want to know what holiness is. It's not about regulations. It's about being in the family. As obedient children. And he could have said, as obedient servants. Or as obedient people. But he didn't say that. He's saying, as obedient children. Remember, you're in his family. Remember, you're fully loved and accepted by him. Why should you be obedient? Because you remember you've been ransomed. You've been not with perishable things, like even gold and silver, not even that. Isn't it wonderful? You see, the key to all of this is that one word in verse 18, knowing. 
knowing. Knowing, he says, that you've been ransomed. I know I've been ransomed. And that I'm fully accepted. I'm his kid. And that becomes the motivation for my obedience to him. If you want to get to the heart of the matter, what it means to live an obedient life as a holy person, not as an employee, it simply means to be holy God. Now, look, this is what holiness is. It's not a conduct. It's not morality. It's not obeying all the rules. Holiness is a person who says, I recognize I belong to you. I'm separated unto you. You have all of the rooms in my house. I give all of my life to you. And you can use me however you want to. That's what it means to be a holy person. Wouldn't it be great if all of us here in Jubilee today did that? And we met it. And we said, God, I want you to have all there is to have in my life. All those things I've held back? No. You can have it all.